What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday morning edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by old friend Logan Booker down there in uh, Athens, Georgia. Logan, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm not sure what this sigh was all about. Was that a uh, uh, you don't want to talk to somebody from Athens, Georgia? Or do you miss it so much that you wish you were closer by? I'm actually okay with Athens. It's it's a I nice town. You, Athens is a is a nice town. Now the football team. I, I do like Athens. Yeah, I, I mean, I would hope so, Logan. What would you have yeah. done if you really were like, man, love Georgia, grew up loving Georgia, but Athens, don't know, not the town for me. <laughs> Luckily, all you got to do is drive up and down Millage Avenue on a spring day or head downtown on a Thursday night, and you'll realize that there is a – I don't care what college team you root for, Athens is a, a good place to be, man. Okay. There, oh, there's wow. no doubt about that. Well, I also saw you went to the old stomping ground, Stone Mountain, yesterday. How was that? I did. It was good, man. I like to sneak over there and uh, get a little exercise every once in a while. I'm on a bit of a workout kick. I think my New Year's resolutions are somehow still intact deep into March. So yeah, I'm enjoying climbing some mountains. And uh, I, if you're from there, you know that there's more than one way up that mountain. I've mm-hmm. kind of discovered some, some secret trails that not many people know about. It's much steeper. But yeah, I like getting over there and just enjoying the weather when it's nice, man. We were just talking off air that it's kind of miserable today. We're recording this. So like, I'm already missing the sunshine. Yeah. And I miss Stone Mountain, man. Stone Mountain is a is a great a great place. Spot. Miss being down the street for, for all part. of the you know political divisiveness that it certainly holds, and there's no denying that. As far as the park itself is actually not a place, not a bad place to go, man. No, not at all. Um, Logan, what uh what are you yeah. reading right now? What are you watching? What would you recommend? What would my reading, watching, and recommending? My gosh, my wife and I just like finished some shows. We're kind of like okay. show homeless right now. Uh, one thing we just got done watching, I think it's on HBO, is mm. the uh, the flight attendant. Okay, if Have you're not familiar seen with that, that it's the, uh, there's a I can't think of her name, Kaylee Q Q something from the Big Bang Theory. I can't okay. I can't say her last name. I know who very you're talking very about. Cute. yeah. She plays that, and that is a really good uh, like thriller. I, I'll give you the quick gist without giving mm-hmm. anything away. She like is a flight attendant. She goes out and parties with the guy in like Bangkok, and she wakes up. He's dead as a doornail sliced up in the bed she has no memory of what happened and all of a sudden it's a uh who done did it and it's actually pretty good interesting we just finished up uh season two of killing eve which is pretty great i don't know if you've dove into that before but uh, i haven't dove into that yet but i've heard other people say it's pretty good too it's pretty wild pretty wild show um well how do we how do we keep up with your work logan at the ref you can uh yeah, if you want to follow the uh, the old Twitter account, it's just at Logan M. Booker. There's that M in between. Somebody out there has the actual Logan Booker, and I'm trying to get that back from him. But, <laughs> but it's got Logan M. Booker on Twitter. Or if you want to tune in any morning, weekday, 6 to 10 a.m., 960 The Ref, there is a free app you can listen to 
worldwide and we don't even charge you for it so it's uh, pretty cool but yeah 6 to 10 a.m every single day where we don't just rah-rah cheer the georgia bulldogs we actually talk about a whole lot of stuff so it's a it's a pretty good little show me and dave do it every single morning what time did you get up this morning logan this morning okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna just okay I, on your <laughs> podcast i'm allowed to talk about this because uh-huh. my wife doesn't like me talking about this in public i got a peloton this year mm. Um, so I got this like exercise bike that I'm like very, very addicted to. I'm actually down like 20 pounds this year already. And you're, you're familiar with the Peloton. Is. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a really nice bike online classes, but I'm on this kick right now, Chase, where I get up and slam a cup of coffee right at four o'clock. <laughs> and then, uh, and then once I slam that cup of coffee, I do between a 30 and 45 minute, very intense bike ride and then kind of scramble over to work get there about five 30, then uh, go on there at six. And then, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's uh, I'm enjoying it, and it's, <laughs> it's intense, man. But I'm uh, I'm addicted to it in a very good way. What time are you going to sleep? Anywhere between seven and nine. If if, if oh, nine wow. o'clock rolls around, yeah. If nine o'clock rolls around, then I'm like, oh god, I'm, I'm up way too late. But typically on a normal night, I will watch Jeopardy at seven thirty. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not really into watching like live tv everything i watch is dvr recorded so I'll even sports like mosey on to bed yeah well if there's a sporting event that i'm legitimately interested in i'll watch it i'm not typically going to stay up and watch something that doesn't have a direct impact on my fandom but i've learned in sports talk radio that i can wake up and cram the headlines the news and know exactly what happened the night before as if i watched it live if that makes sense yeah i mean there's, there's I, i'm a big dvr guy too and i don't like watching yeah, stuff live for the most part um also i just like being able to go back and i take notes on everything and it's just um unless it's like a pro wrestling thing a pro wrestling (laughs) pay-per-view logan i have to watch that live because it will be spoiled for me i've seen your live analysis i I admire it i've never gotten into it myself but i am glad that you have something that makes you that happy everybody needs that chase yeah it's the dorkiest thing about me maybe like actually no the dorkiest (laughs) thing is my obsession with owls or Mm, my library, like just the amount of books that I, they really do have around my, my room is pretty, pretty dorky. Everybody's got their thing, bro. We do. We do. Um, well, don't forget folks. You can go check out chase thomas podcast.com for access to all my previous episodes. And if you like listening to Logan and myself talk on this very podcast, you can subscribe on Apple podcasts. And if you're an iPhone listener, just tap a five-star rating and review right now. It's great. Um, we're going to talk today, Logan, about the return of JT Daniels, year two, um, in Georgia, red and black. We're going to talk about year one of Todd Monken, the return of a very deep wide receiver and running back room, and uh, how Monken and Kirby navigate this uh, this good problem to have, which is a lot of depth. Um, how loaded, in your estimation, is the offense heading into 2021 compared to 2020, in your estimation, Logan? It's night and day to be honest with you i mean i'll tell you what really put a crutch on georgia last year and that was the day that uh that jamie newman announced that he was opting out because Mm -hmm. georgia went through the entire spring Uh, i think most of the summer if i'm saying that right i have to go back and find the exact date where he announced that he was not going to be around but georgia had prepared very vehemently in a very thin quarterback room it wasn't just that he left it was that georgia was already so thin at the position and jt daniels did commit and come over in the summertime but he was not ready he had that knee injury and and, and you saw that in the as the season progressed it was not a stubborn 
Kirby Smart. It was not a mismanagement of the offense. It was a very much, and I can tell you definitively with some people I talked to within the program, that, that JT Daniels was hurt. His knee was not ready until very, very late in the season when you finally saw him against Mississippi State. But as far as experience goes, as far as, and I was looking at our notes right now, you made a very good point, as far as Todd Munkin getting his first spring as well, that was all canceled this time last year. Mm-hmm. That is a huge, huge deal. The emergence of some of these wide receivers that Georgia has outside of just Jay, uh, uh, George Pickens, who's phenomenal. But you got the Arian Smith stepping up. You had the freshman Trey Burton last year making good strides. You had, you know, Kyrus good things he's back again um i think this attached to the experience of jt daniels uh to the implementation of the offense that todd munkin finally gets to do during a spring right now it really is night and day and i'd go as far as to say this is probably the best georgia offense coming back since maybe the aaron murray days back at the early uh turn of the decade <laughs> we're talking literally 10 years ago uh make you feel old real quick but yeah this this is by far i think the best offense that kirby smart will have and uh, I think, you know, if Georgia's going to do something, it needs to step up big time and be elite like, like these other teams that we've seen do it. Um, the, the Alabamas, the LSUs, and even Ohio State was pretty darn good this year too. But, yeah, I think Georgia fans here in Athens are pretty darn excited. For a change, it actually feels weird to be talking more about the offense during an offseason than the defense because we're so used to being, you know, somewhat of a de- defensive-minded school, especially under Kirby Smart the last few years. But I think uh, the times they are a change in. Yep. And uh, people, people are pretty optimistic about this offense, man. I think they got some good pieces coming back. They are they are a changing, and that's just how it is. I mean, we, we yep. saw this with Nick Saban years ago, and we, we see that now with LSU. We see it, it just it's how things have evolved in college football. And it's either adapt or get left behind. Um, and thankfully, Tennessee hired someone offensively focused. And uh, all the yep. talk has been about speed and tempo and simplifying things. And uh, it's all exciting before Tennessee steps in the field. And then you're like, oh, no, what are we doing? Um, well, yes. Tennessee just got to hold their players. <laughs> that mm, okay. okay. right now. We all, we, no, we all get it. Like it is, you, when you change coaches, that's mm. going to happen. But I like Heifel. I'm not going to lie. I think he's a, a good quarter, a good coach at, at UFC, at UCF. I always say UFC at UCF. There is a sky. There is a mm-hmm. limit. There is a roof that you cannot really punch through. In my opinion, they are not the 2017 national champions. With his resources at Tennessee, I'm, I'm putting them on my watch list for like a three-year forecast. I think they're going to get exponentially better. So you can be excited, Chase. Okay, I'll allow it. I mean, exciting is just... Yeah, I, I, I think there's just different ceilings for the Georgia program and the Tennessee program, and that's really tough for Tennessee fans to understand and to adapt to and to accept. It's just like you're never going to be happy if you're expecting to be Georgia. Like, it's just the the recruiting base is not there. Tennessee is not the same when it comes to Georgia and the pipeline. And it's just, it's not going to be a thing. And you just have to hope for a modern offense, good quarterback play, and kind of just be like the team that, you know, every five, maybe four years, you have a 10 and 2, 11 and 1 magical year. But you just hope for 8 and 4, good offense, and some good bowl games and good experiences. Like, that is what you should be. You should be, best case scenario is like an Auburn is what Tennessee should go for. And I don't know if fans are there yet because they just think 1998. It's like, mm, not. it's a different world. It's a, it's a different world. It's unlikely for them to ever build that kind of just perennial powerhouse. It's just not a, not a thing. Same cycle. They certainly do. But I, I, I think the cycle in which Tennessee had its literal glory days of 1998, like you said, 
think about other schools around. What was Alabama during that time? It was the 90s. They weren't very good at all. Auburn was sort of up and down. Georgia was going through the Ray Golf years where he was. Georgia wasn't good at all. Uh, Florida was a thorn in Tennessee's you-know-what up until 98 when they finally uh, uh, was able to win the national championship. But, yeah, a lot of other factors involved. But that being said, the sport is so cyclical, you never know what the forecast is going to be down the road. Um, but, yeah, I do think we're in an era right now. And, look, it's not just Georgia. It's not just Tennessee. The entire nation, the entire conference has an Alabama problem right now. That is mm-hmm. a real, real problem in Tuscaloosa. So it, it's frustrating as a Georgia fan because we hear it all the damn time from every single rival within you know, a, a, a state around us. They love to talk about how Georgia underachieves and, oh, Georgia can't win the big one. And then in the very next breath, they talk about how Alabama was the best team they've ever seen. Like, which one is it? Like, is Georgia supposed to beat that team, or is Georgia doing exactly what Georgia should have done and did not beat that Alabama team? Or LSU the year prior. We talk about Joe Burrow's run at LSU as if it were just like, you know, divine intervention. that <laughs> They were destined to win it all. But at the same time, you make fun of Georgia for not winning it. It's like, dude, trust me, we want to get on that level too, and we're making strides. But don't don't call one team the best you've ever seen and the other one in, in embarrassment for not beating that team, if that makes sense. That's the frustrations yeah. we deal with on a, on a daily basis here in Athens. Well, that's what happens when you go big game hunting. Oh, that's yeah. what happens when you recruit at <laughs> a top three level year over year. Like, the expectations I know, are different. I get it. You're in the big game now. Um, it, and I, there was something that was said right after Georgia lost the national championship in uh, – it would have been January 2018, but that 2017 season, some, someone I know that wrote a really good column – Uh, basically said, like, Georgia fans, I hope you enjoyed this season as magical as it was because it will never be fun again. And that's exactly what it's been like since that second and 26 horrible, horrible moment. I don't think I've had fun being a Georgia fan (laughs) since because we're not going to have fun until we win a national championship. We've had, you know, consecutive 11-win seasons. We're beating our rivals. Like, there are good things happening. But as a diehard alumnus, I'm not having fun right now. Now, that's just the way we are. And, and like you said, you're in the big, big arena now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, bringing it back to Todd Monken, Logan, um, how excited yeah. are you and Georgia fans for Todd Monken to get a full spring to install the kind of stuff that he would want to install with JT Daniels and friends? It, it's massive. And, and you use both names there because they, they, they do go along with one another. Because if you go back and really, really break down dissect some Georgia tape early in the season when Stetson Bennett was taking snaps, when Dwan Mathis kept getting a couple of opportunities and never really panned out to what we had hoped Dwan Mathis would be. There were a lot, and I'm talking a lot, of plays that were there, of, of good play calls that were not executed due to lack of, of skill on the field. I mean, look, I love Stetson Bennett. He's done some great things for the Georgia program, but he's not who you need as your play caller, as your uh, your arm in the SEC. And, and and great kid, not a great football player. I'll just put it out there. Juwan Mathis also just not the skill set you needed. We, we've broken this down a million different ways. There were, there were just so many opportunities for Georgia's offense to capitalize on certain things. And, and really, when, when I say that, I'm only talking about two games, by the way. The only two regular season games that Georgia lost last year, in fact, the only two games, were that trip to Tuscaloosa, then the, uh, the debacle down in Jacksonville. And, and both of those had so many opportunities for Georgia to capitalize, but the, the skill set just was not there. And the fact that we go into this spring with Todd Munkin being able to 
really have these practices via the G-Day coming up to, to implement his offense, to have JT Daniels, who is very, very good. He still has a long way to go to be considered that elite, maybe early first-round draft pick, if he's even able to get to that level. Uh, but the two of them together, I think, will will make some massive, massive strides, especially we already talked about some of the depth at a wide receiver. But, yeah, I, I think this spring is is – valuable for everybody but i'm not sure there's a team in the nation especially the sec that is going to benefit more from already having an offense that's familiar and now you get to fine tune that thing as if it were new with a lot of skilled players that are just hands down better than they were last year and here's something that's kind of crazy about georgia and really this goes for everybody but there i think kirby smart told us just in the last couple weeks that 65 percent of this georgia roster 65 percent have never gone through a spring practice and and that that goes to the summer enrollees of the 2019 team so here's a name that you know george pickens george pickens has never gone through spring he was a summer enrollee before his freshman year in 2019 he was a uh, and obviously last year nobody got a spring practice it's so much of the roster that finally gets to to do what is a very very valuable thing for every program and that's go through the spring so yeah i think todd monk and jt daniels throw george pickens in the mix and uh Another name, I don't see him on our notes here, but Darnell Washington, yeah. Agent Zero, man. The big, massive tight end who, I, when I talked a minute ago about a lot of plays that were there that were not executed, there are two dozen highlights and films you can go look at where Darnell Washington, the biggest man on the field, is standing wide open in the middle of the field, and our quarterbacks never even saw him last year. So that is going to be an absolute X factor uh, in this offense. And, uh, He's yeah, a hard guy not to man, see. I think, I know that's that's my that's my whole thing. Like, <laughs> you and I, with, with like next to no physical ability, mm-hmm. I could I could see Darnell Washington twelve fifteen yards down the field at least put the ball in his vicinity and give him a chance. But instead, there were way too many needles trying trying to be thread last year that had no business being thread that wound up in incomplete passes when you could have dinked and dunked to Darnell Washington and just sort of slow march down the field. So it's frustrating. But yeah, this this spring is big time, man. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Um, what did you see specifically about JT down the stretch that makes you most excited for a full season of JT Daniels in 2021? The answer might actually surprise you. It's the throws that he missed. It's, mm. it's the footwork that has been has been documented already where he was just not set the way he should have been. He was coming off that injury. I'm not sure his confidence was fully there. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you some insight as to what I've kind of gathered is that up until the week before he started Mississippi State, he was still getting that knee drained uh, like once a week. That thing was still getting built up with fluid. It was an ACL injury for those that aren't fully familiar with mm-hmm. it back in his USC days. Um, but he just, I don't think his confidence was fully there. Some of his mechanics were not right. And he would overthrow a few players every once in a while and or he would underthrow. There's another guy, Arian Smith, that he was a freshman last year, wide receiver, that some of the fastest players on this Georgia team have told us that he is faster than they are, and he just seems ungodly. If you go pull up the Georgia-South Carolina film, he had a really good touchdown in that one. And if you go look at some of the uh, Cincinnati tape, there was a couple of underthrown balls that Arian had beaten his guy by two or three steps, and JT just did not step into a ball as hard as he should have and thrown it downfield and actually missed him. And uh, it it wound up being a long reception, but it could have been a walk-in touchdown. There was a couple instances like that. But I think JT showed some really, really good things, and the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, his his interception – I mean, so touchdown-to-interception numbers were fantastic. 
But the fact that he still left so much on the field and now he gets to go through a spring with Todd Munkin, some more experienced wide receivers, uh, that Darnell Washington we just talked about, I think we've yet to see the real potential of JT Daniels. So I think what I'm most excited about what I saw is what I kind of didn't see. Not trying to get philosophical on you, but that, that's sort of where my, where my mind's at right now. Well, you also had a really good uh, video of Zamir White in the run against Cincinnati where it was kind of the stuff that we hadn't seen before um, with coming off two devastating in- knee injuries and still just trying to get back to his pre-knee injury form. But you also have Kendall Milton, who looked really, really good in flashes and just had full mm-hmm. Nick Chubbitis, and uh, not a big fan of that, uh, in my opinion. Um, so, look, <laughs> Kendall, look, if you really want to spread your wings, that that running back room, just getting a little too full. Like, if you want to go somewhere, like, I don't know, that's orange, that literally has just question marks everywhere in the running back position, just feel free to, to make the transition. I, I'm, not, um, I'm not sure Oklahoma State's looking for a running back right now, though, Chase. I don't know what you're trying to talk about. No. Um, no, what, dude, what did Kendall you see? Is, is, Kendall is a dude. He is an absolute dude. And you saw the freshman version of him. He kind of tweaked his knee against Florida. So his, if you just go based on stats, he actually missed quite a few games. And, oh, by the way, he was buried in the depth chart between, mm-hmm. behind some other really good running backs. But – if I had to pick one player on this offense, and we'd start talking about this every single offseason, about who's the breakout guy. You know, third time I've already mentioned Darnell Washington. He's up there. But I think the number one player for me is going to be Kendall Milton. I think he's going to go through this offseason getting bigger and better at the college level. Uh, you used the Nick Chubb comparison. That is a very good one. I actually, and bear with me here, you may roll your eyes, I think body type, I think the way I see him run actually reminds me a little bit more of a young Todd Gurley than it does Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb is sort of kind of put your head down, run through the hole, and the rest will work itself out, whereas uh, uh, Kendall Milton really likes to seek out that contact, bounce off of it, and then just keep on chugging along. His yards after contact last year were the most impressive I've seen in maybe a decade of Georgia running backs back to uh, that Todd Gurley era. So I'm not I'm not sitting here saying, though, we got the next Todd Gurley on the team, but if you want to make a comparison with another Georgia uniform, I, I definitely see that, man. I, I just, yeah, we're, we're high on him right now, and I wouldn't be surprised if he starts getting in some of those first, second team uh, reps, even with Zamir White and James Cook both coming back. So, I'm with you, man. Anything to keep him in a Georgia uniform. He is a California kid, but uh, him and his father, very vocal on social media, seem pretty happy in Georgia right now. So I'm excited to see what he can do this fall. Well, I'm not excited. Um, how do you... <laughs> um, I think the wide receiver room is probably the most interesting to me uh, heading into the spring, mm-hmm. Logan. Um, when you look at the depth chart, I think it was 247 had a really good analysis of all the different positions and like how they are going to fit and who belongs in the slot and who's going to go out wide. And Demetrius Robertson coming back is kind of interesting for his 19th college season. Um, yeah, really. When you think about all the talent there, and you think about obviously you have the George Pickens with the most upside, the best receiver by far in the room, but Trey Burton, like you said, really, really showed flashes last year. And you look at the different options, Blaylock coming back, and then you think about um, just how Monken is going to divvy up these snaps. Um, what are you most excited about, and how do you think it unfolds? How do you think the where the snaps will go um, for? the three different positions in this Monken offense? So as of now, it's actually quite criminal how little Georgia has used George Pickens. I mean, when, when he has his moments, he has really, really good moments. Uh, but the numbers are not there. He needs to be 
the go-to guy in that wide receiver position. He needs to, you know, really start clicking with JT Daniels. And Todd Munkin knows what he has there. Uh, George Pickens is an absolute special talent. He is going to make a whole lot of money on Sundays before his uh, career is said and done. Uh, but it, it's just, like I said, criminal is the way to describe how little we've gotten out of out of George. And he, am I saying he's a thousand yard receiver this year? I'm not sure about that. That's going to take a whole lot of you know catch and run, some long distance stuff. But you also got that really, really loaded running back room coming back. As you mentioned, Zamir White, who's going to be the healthiest version we've seen. Don't forget, he tore two ACLs, one in high school, another on the other leg, by the way. So both of his knees have gone through ACL issues right before his freshman season. And the two seasons we've had, you know, the timeline for those things are not – it's not a given. You never know how they're going to react, but – those that watch every single snap of Georgia football, we know without a shadow of a doubt that Zamir White is slowly getting better and better and better. And that video you talked about it uh, in the Peach Bowl against Cincinnati, you started to see that that version we saw in his high school recruiting film. This kid is an absolute beast uh, with the ball, and he's getting bigger and bigger. We can tell that as well. But after, I'm hoping, barring any setbacks, you're going to see a very, very healthy you know, Zamir White to go along with that Kendall Milton we just talked about and, oh, what about James Cook? I, I, I would love to see a Todd Munkin creativity-based offense get him some touches like Alvin Kamara did with the Saints or is still getting with the Saints. I mean, that style of weapon goes a long, long, long way. It's not going to be a secret. I think when you put, like, a James Cook out there, you know you're not going to run him between the tackles unless you have a really solid offensive line, which is a little bit of a work in progress right now too. But, but the weapons in the backfield are – are deep and the the wide receiving core. You we haven't even talked about Marcus Roseme Jack Saint who broke yeah. his ankle and scoring a touchdown against Florida. That was brutal. He's another name that was real. Oh, it was nasty by the way, but he was coming on really really good uh, until that nasty break in the end zone. Which hey, dog fans love him by the way because it was very visible while he was down with a broken ankle in the end zone. Coaches, did I score? Or like, was it a touchdown? Because they had to review it, and make sure he caught it. But like. He, he literally had an ankle hanging on by a thread in a nasty, nasty break, and he's, like, looking up at the Jumbotron asking the coaches, did I get the points? And, like, he is right now currently, like, a bit of a uh, a hero, to say the, to say the least. But, like, yeah, he's, he's – Georgia fans really, really like him right now because of that. But, yeah, he's another one that adds to that depth. But back to the whole offensive uh, excitement, this is not only going to be the most potent in one aspect, it could be – a like ridiculously balanced offense as well with weapons you have. And I've, I've really chased, I've tried to shy away the last couple of years from giving that like Disney fluff. I don't want to be the guy in the off season that builds up Georgia as this like sure to be undefeated. You know, I've tried to be very real the last few years, but you can probably even tell in my voice right now, like I'm actually genuinely excited to see this Georgia offense. And I have not been excited about a Georgia offense since since probably Aaron Murray back in 2012. So I'm I'm it, it's a good time right now, man. It really truly is. Last thing, Logan, we'll wrap up here. Yeah, man. Um, the offensive line with the transition that was like the most inter- like maybe the most interesting thing coming into last year with Monken was just the change and the style. And Tennessee will have to do that this year, going from who they were recruiting beforehand to like, hey, people are gonna have to drop pounds to play with the pace and space that uh, Josh Heupel wants to run. It's just very different. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you what do you think of the first year of Matt Luke running this offensive line, and do you think uh, the offensive line is going to change more for the better? It, it certainly 
so there were some some opt outs back in the uh, the Peach Bowl. Some very big names, some big mm-hmm. Cleveland, some guys that did not want to play in that thing. And I, I I I get it. I'm not going to advocate for it one way or the other. I don't love it, but I fully understand why they do those kind of things. Um, but I think the offensive line you saw out there had some very very good pieces. Uh, Jamari Sawyer is a phenomenal. Uh, uh, offensive lineman that can either play tackle or guard. My guess is they're going to try to get him back into uh, the guard position and maybe get some of these really, really big young guys out on the edge. You know, I I think about the uh, Broderick Jones, the five-star kid out of Lithonia, that really – he had a hurt leg at the beginning of last season, but he started to get more and more playing time as the season went on. And this is an absolute just giant of an individual who has so much upside. Side. I'm hoping that he has a really good spring as well and is able to get more snaps out on the outside. Uh, uh, on the other side, there's that true freshman, and I never, ever like to put my eggs in a true freshman basket, but Amarius Mims is an absolute just freak of nature uh, who's coming up. I think Cochran, George, is where he's from. He is gigantic. He was. He is, and if you've ever been around him or seen the you know real tape of him in high school, he, he had no business playing high school football the last year. He, was, he just wasn't fair. Um, but yeah, from what we've heard, and this is just nothing but just, you know, talking to people in the program, he did practice with the team for the bowl game, even though he was not obviously eligible to play in that bowl game. But they said that even then he was already like making his mark on that offensive line that you, they could tell that this kid is going to be ready maybe sooner than others. So Marius Mims is one to keep an eye on, but you know, in the middle of that thing, there is still work to be done. Uh, Owen Condon, Warren, Warren McClendon, Warren Erickson, uh, Justin Schaefer, a player that you know started coming back more last year. He was hurt a couple of years ago, but started getting more and more reps. He's back for a, uh, I guess, is he a super senior? He's one of these like sixth-year guys. Um, but he's good as well. It's going to be a little bit of a work in progress. This is one of the big conversation pieces we'll probably have uh, between now and September 4th when we have to play that game against Clemson. But uh, the pieces are there. That's the thing. Another kid, Micah Morris, another freshman as well. But the pieces are definitely there, but the good news is I think Georgia can be balanced enough to kind of keep keep you from pass rushing every single snap. You want to you don't want to get in the backfield and all of a sudden the running back runs right by you. But at the same time, you certainly want to you know defend that pass as well. But yeah, it's 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 going to be the biggest question mark if you want to make the one thing on the offense that Georgia fans are maybe a little uneasy about. It's not can this team be good it's where who who who's going to play where to make it good if that makes sense now as far as matt luke he's done a phenomenal job so far he picked up where sam Pittman left when sam Pittman got hired away by arkansas that was a very very bad day chase that was the day after georgia had gotten just blown out by lsu in that sec championship game the mood is kind of down and all of a sudden you hear out of nowhere that Sam Pittman, who was like the seventh or eighth option at Arkansas, decided to like take the job, and no one saw that coming. And uh, Matt Luke, to his credit, man, has continued to sign multiple five-star kids each cycle, and uh, overall production's been pretty darn good. And he seems to really be, you know, adapted in Athens and is doing a pretty good job. I, w- I don't think he's going to be around too long because he has that head coaching experience, and I think he'll probably get a shot somewhere else at some point. But yeah, no complaints about Matt Luke at all. But but yeah, we'll keep an eye on this offensive line as we creek to the end of spring and summer and really start getting real in a few months here all right logan tell the listeners again how they can listen to you monday through friday on uh on 960 the ref yeah 960 the ref you can either go to 960 com if you're sitting in front of a computer or the free app just anywhere in the itunes or google play store just 960 the ref look it up and it's free and it's, it's very interactive and fun man
All or right. follow me on Twitter at Logan M. Booker. I can always keep you up to date there. Absolutely. Go do that. Logan, keep up the great work, my friend. I greatly appreciate the time, as always, sir. Well, let me know when you want to go climb that mountain over in Stone Mountain, man. Will do. Will do. I will take All you right. up on that next time I'm back. Let's do it. All right, Logan. All right, Chase. We'll see you, bud. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. It's Tuesday, so you know what that means. It's John Taylor of Fangraphs. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Um, it's cold and nasty again back in uh, back in Knoxville, Tennessee. But um, you know, it was a it was a nice weekend under the circumstances back in Atlanta, even for a brief amount of time. But, uh, you know, getting through it. Getting through it, John. Yeah, I mean, it's I we had that brief moment here up here last weekend where it got warm, then it got cold again, and I've just decided to pretend like it didn't get cold because that's offensive to me. Winter is over. I mean, I, I don't need to deal with this anymore. No, yeah, winter, winter is over. Baseball's here. It's time for winter to hit the bricks, as the youth say, John. Um, what have you found yourself reading? and watching over the last week. Wait, did the youth really say hit the bricks? No, they don't, John. Okay, I was going to say, that's not a, that's not a thing, right? <laughs> no, John, that not, not, a, not a thing. I am uh, not cool, and I have zero idea what the, the youth are saying these days. I mean, you could, you could be right. I mean, since you don't know what the youth are saying, maybe they are saying that. That might be. You're right. I may have just accidentally stumbled into it. You're, you're not wrong. What was the initial question? I, I got distracted. By <laughs> I love that I just like bamboozled you with the uh, the hit the bricks um, youth quote. Um, no, I was just asking, uh, what have you been reading? What have you been watching as of late? Uh, nothing as of late. I mean, reading. I'm just like a, as always trying to catch my big stack of New Yorkers. You're watching. Just, I, I'm you're trying hitting to... New Yorker all the time. Like you are just in there every week. I, I'm a I'm a year behind at this point. So you're I never catching just... up, John. I know, but I gotta keep trying. You gotta try. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. And uh, watching wise, I'm debating whether or not to. I've never seen the Americans, but I'm debating whether or not to mm. give it a. Give it you a were go. debating last week, so it's not going well. Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, I'm still. I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm. I'm very slow in my process. I. Uh, I've been watching Killing Eve with the lady friend, and uh, very good show. I, I enjoy it. Yeah, it's one of those shows I really liked the first season and then kind of fell off after that because it just felt like a show to me that didn't need anything. Well, better said, I, I think it probably would have worked better as a limited thing where you would have wrapped it all up in one season as opposed yeah. to keep going. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely enjoyed season one. I just I just bailed after, I think, halfway through season two. I was like, this is just getting kind of silly. How dare you, one. But two, how, how you're not I? wrong. You're you're not wrong. It's it's getting kind of silly, but it's also just enjoyable. I love spending a little bit of time with those characters every week. It's it's a nice way to spend some time. Um, That's fair. Don't forget, folks. You can listen to this podcast by going to chasethomaspodcast.com, supporting us by following John at J A Taylor on Twitter, following myself at Chase Double underscore Thomas, liking the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer, and leaving John and I. A glowing review about how much you love listening to us talking about Major League Baseball on the Tuesday edition of this very podcast by going to Apple Podcasts and searching Chase Thomas Podcast and leaving a, uh, a five-star rating and a review. That's uh, that's what you do if you have an iPhone. Um, John, we're going to be talking about 
Ryan Braun, the saddest answers about the state of his game and retiring from baseball. Uh, Mickey Moniak versus Adubel Herbera at, uh, in Philadelphia for the center fielder job. Mikhail Franco landing in Baltimore. Forrest Whitley undergoing Tommy John surgery. And then the Mets season preview edition of this very podcast. Um, let's start with Ryan Braun. This seems like the end for the late 30-year-old. Um, the man who got uh, the Brewers just kind of like back into the national stage. Like obviously the... The, the off-the-field stuff, um, not great. The uh, I'll remember him most for just that insane saga with... Was that FedEx or UPS guy? Who who was that? I don't even remember at this point. I, I, I was about to say, I, I can't remember exactly which company it was, but it, it really does feel bad in a sense that, like, when I think of Ryan Braun, that, too, is what jumps out to mind. Like, because he had a really good career. He yeah. All, it feels like it's just gotten not necessarily overshadowed but it felt like that whole mess that happened is what kind of ended up becoming his story because of what it meant i guess for the rest not just for the rest of his numbers but also just for the way he presented himself with that weird claim that he was being targeted by anti-semitism i I believe or whatever the exact uh rationale there was it's just and i think this is just kind of a reality with any guy who gets uh, the PED label uh, for pretty much anything is that that that's just something that you can't really ignore, you know, um, and that that's just kind of a thing that ends up clouding a career unless you're someone like a I don't know I, I mean this is the thing I'm not a Brewers fan I didn't pay terribly close attention to the you know to the Brewers when Braun was there you know they really only got I mean they were intermittently good. Um, obviously he won the MVP in 2011 that in retrospect really looks like, you know, Matt Kemp would have been the, the more, at least the less controversial choice. Um, he was a very good outfielder for a bit, but I, I think the thing with Braun too, is that, you know, with, because he was on those Brewers teams that were, you know, again, it's like I said, intermittently good, but never really got much national attention. I think unfortunately for Braun, the most national attention he probably got aside from winning the MVP was that whole mess with biogenesis and his and a testosterone test suspension so and it, it's sad because he, he he deserves better than that i mean again assuming that you know he was clean afterward for his career in his career uh, which certainly we can't know i mean he never failed to test past that point so i'm going to assume that that you know that he was but and yeah i just i was looking at the exact details just now it was a fedex delivery center um where the samples were sat around for too long. And so he won his, 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 uh, what's it called? Um, uh, his art his challenge on a, his suspension challenge on a, on a, basically a technicality. And then there was the whole weird thing about, uh, like I was saying earlier with, uh, talking about the particular, what's the, what would you call this guy? Uh, the test collector and just how the sample was handled and that there was some anti-Semitic, thing going on like that that kind of particular weirdness just tends to like overshadow anything else sometimes but i mean which i feel bad i, I feel bad for any brewers and listening to this, to listen to this episode is probably going to get upset that you know we're, we're talking about ryan Braun purely in that context but again it's just kind of hard when you are a player who doesn't have a big national profile and something like that happens that you really just that's kind of what you become known for and yeah. that's the unfortunate reality i think for ryan Braun. 
In terms of on the field, though, so Brewers fans are not in our mentions, John. Um, if we remove the the alleged steroid stuff, is he a Hall of Famer? I I don't think so. I would guess without having looked that he is probably short on the major numbers. I mean, I believe he's over 2,000 career hits, which is good, obviously. But just in terms of the advanced stats, actually, no, he's not at 2,000 career hits. He's just under 1,963, mm. which is, uh, as many people have noted, that 2,000 hits for hitters is more or less kind of a, a must-clear benchmark. And without that, he's probably going to fall short. I mean, you look at his, his advanced numbers, too. He's right there on the peak war, which makes sense because his peak was very strong. But his career only really only amounted 14 seasons. He didn't like he always had some or he had some injury issues kind of in the back half that kept him playing more regularly. He fell off uh, certainly in the back half and became someone who was more of a an above average hitter as opposed to a great hitter. And yeah, I, I just I, I just felt kind of myself like his career is probably just too short. Mm. And while he had a nice peak, it wasn't enough. It wasn't like a Halliday sized peak where he was, you know, there was never a period where you're thinking to yourself for like a five year stretch, Ryan Braun is the best hitter or player in baseball. Um, and for a guy whose career wasn't long enough to reach any of the kind of major statistical benchmarks you would need for Hall of Fame consideration, you know, he never got the 2,000 hits. He never got the 400 home runs. Um, I mean, he was a good, good player overall. Career 134 OPS plus is, is great. But I, he just did. I don't, I don't think he did enough in his time in the league. And the advanced num- numbers would suggest too that he just, you know, I mean, I, a lot of the Hall of Fame is about compilation and. You know, Ryan Braun just didn't compile enough stats, ultimately. He also, he's one of those rare cases where, like, when I think about Braun, remember he was just rumored for the Giants for years, and he was rumored for bigger markets, and he is just someone I think, if he had to do it all over again, I wonder if he's like, man, standing in Milwaukee and being committed to this franchise that just operates in a, will pseudo-contend forever, um and play within their means and all that kind of stuff where if he had just gone somewhere else in those last five to six years of his prime, if he played in New York, if he played um, for the Dodgers, if he played for, I don't know, the, the Phillies or something like that, that I wonder how he would view Ryan Braun. And if he, like that was a mistake on his part where the national profile is also a part of the hall of fame case is just the national profile and how much people remember you. And these last few years, he has just been an afterthought. And if he was DHing or just doing something in the AL, um, I'd wonder if we we view Ryan Braun the same way. But it felt like he never really reinvented himself as a player, and it just kind of progressively got more just kind of depressing with the injuries and age and decline. And I don't know. I just I think him never leaving is something that I'm also going to think about with him. That's fair, but I do get the sense he never really wanted to leave. Yeah. I mean, they've asked him, you know, is there is there any way you guys? It does sound like the Brewers are the only team he would play for if he mm-hmm. if he had the opportunity to play again. So he's pretty despondent yeah, I mean, when he was asked about it. Where it's just like, I mean, it's really only the Brewers, but they don't really need me, so I'm basically yeah. retired. Um, and yeah, you're you're probably right that like you know if if he had been on a team with a bigger national profile or one that had been to the postseason more often, which isn't to say like obviously the Brewers with Ryan Braun did, you know, were around in the postseason, certainly, you know, but the thing is like the biggest, the, the biggest Brewers postseason run was the one two seasons ago or 
uh, I believe it was two seasons ago, where yep. they lost the Dodgers in the NLCS, and he really wasn't that big a part of. No, that, that was Christian Yelich. That was Christian Yelich's team. So, and that's kind of the thing. Like his, by the time the Brewers kind of got consistently good, Yelich had become enough of a thing on his own, and especially winning the MVP to kind of not even become the next Ryan Braun necessarily, because I, I don't think they're necessarily the same player, but to kind of become the face of that team kind of in the way Braun was. So, yeah, yeah I think you're right. If, you, if you'd put him on a better team in his prime and one that existed in a you know larger national market, sure, we're probably, we're probably talking about Ryan Braun a little differently, and for certain we're, we're probably not talking about, you know, the, the kind of like, you know, what do you remember Ryan Braun for as the time he called a, a, a sample collector for a, for a piss test an anti-Semite for, for leaving the sample on a FedEx overnight or something. Um, the center fielder job, I think, is really interesting right now for two NLEs teams, the Braves with Christian Pache and Ender Inciarte, because if Pache does not win the job, he will get all the reps on the alternate site and starting the season in May um, at uh, Gwinnett. So there's a lot of pressure there. But also there's a lot of pressure in Philadelphia because they want to do the same sort of thing with Mickey Moniak, former number one overall pick, had a rough time going through the minors in Philadelphia. Stop me if you heard this one before, but a Phillies prospect has not developed um, the way Philadelphia may have preferred. Um, so Adubel Herrera is, I guess, Pinselman is the favorite, but Moniak is going to get every opportunity to win the center fielder job in Philadelphia this season. Who do you think ultimately wins this job, and uh, is this something that you're interested in head- headlining the spring in Philadelphia? First question, I think it's pretty. I think it's, if if come down to because I mean I think that Roman Quinn will have some role to play there, mm. um, but it seems like he, you know he's kind of it's kind of iffy as to whether or not he has the chops to be a starter. I think if he, if it is a matter of Adam Hazley being too injured to make the opening day roster. Um, and I, I, I don't know what the exact timeline is on there. I, I you know, not keeping up all that closely with the Phillies. Um, then I think if it is Herrera, I don't really think it's much of a competition. Moniak is just not major league ready, uh, or at least he's not, he is not good enough. Moniak is like a poor man's Pache at this point, And he's not good. He is not a good enough hitter to be at the major league level. And he doesn't make up for it enough in any other capacity. You know, he's not an elite defender. He's not a great base runner. There's not something else there that he's really bringing to the team that, you know, he he can't really he can't really offer them anything aside from being cheap. Which I'm not sure what Herrera's contract status is, especially given what happened with his suspension. I don't know exactly how that affects things in terms of. I believe he was already on some deal, so the Phillies are already paying. Probably also has something to do with this. But Herrera, at least they know, has a track record of success in the major leagues, yeah. even if that track record is extremely spotty. The bigger question, I think, here is whether or not Odubel Herrera deserves to be on a major league team after what happened and after his suspension. And that's a much cloudier, more difficult question because, I mean, it, it basically just it, it becomes a, a much thornier discussion and maybe not one that's necessarily all that easy to have on a, just, you know, on a, Fun chatting time podcast, but I mean, when you do have someone who did what he did, there is always that question of what is appropriate in terms of whether or not he can be basically back on a major league team. And it's not to say that, you know, there is, I guess that it's thorny. I don't necessarily believe that zero tolerance, so to speak, is the best thing that just, you know, because he did this thing, 
he is no longer ever allowed basically to have a job. That's kind of absurd. But it is always dependent on what kind of remorse has he shown? Has he apologized? Has he changed? You know, what kind of person is he now? Is this someone who has atoned for the things he has done, or at the very least, you know, taken responsibility and acknowledged, hey, I did a terrible thing, and I am never going to do this terrible thing again. And here's, I know why I did this terrible thing, and I'm going to make sure it never happens again. And without knowing that, I, you know, it's hard to say for sure whether or not it, this is kind of right on the Phillies' part. I can easily imagine that if Herrera does make the roster, that's going to prompt a lot of, a lot of thoughts from people, especially in, in, in Phillies' fandom, as to you know how you can kind of make peace with this. And it's an unfortunate reality that this is just a conversation that has to keep happening because these players, you know, these players don't just disappear because they've done something like. This. I mean, sometimes they do. But it's kind of easy to understand, especially in this scenario where it's like, well, we're paying him and he's still a capable major league player and we have a need, you know, that this becomes it becomes less kind of a thought exercise and more of a straight up like ethical debate. And I don't know that there's a good answer here. I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily have a position on it, because, like I said, a lot of it depends on kind of who Herrera is now and how he acts and what he's done and said into suspension to demonstrate that he is no longer that person. Um, it's just weird. It's, we're talking about it on a pure baseball level because that still stands out. But because we don't know those details, kind of all we have is the pure baseball level. But even beyond that, I have to, I have to assume that if Herrera, or that because Herrera is in camp, and the fact, excuse me, the fact that the Phillies haven't, or that they still have him around and seem to have him in this competition and seem to have him, you know, as a realistic option to be in center field would suggest that he has at least said or done enough to convince them that he is that he is sorry in whatever capacity that means. And I guess we just have to go on that. But I, I think it is something that is going to leave a bit of a bad taste in people's mouths. If after all the kind of, you know, very quick, like, you know, the Phillies, you know, the Phillies, as with every other team, the Phillies organization doesn't stand for this kind of behavior and et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden for him to be back because largely in part because, well, he fills a hole and he just happens to be here. It's like, yeah, that, that kind of, I think, demonstrates kind of what is the, the central kind of let's call it unpleasantness or controversy or at least just bad feeling that there is in professional sports sometimes where it's like your ability as a player sometimes does over like make not make up it sometimes does it, when push comes to shove like it's kind of it's not that surprising where teams end up going you know yeah unfortunately um, Mikhail Franco rumored a lot of different stops, um, but he has ultimately signed with the Baltimore Orioles. Any thoughts on Franco and Baltimore? It's funny that they got rid of Rio Ruiz, or sorry, not Rio Ruiz, Renato Nunez, and replaced him with basically worse Renato Nunez. <laughs> um, which I imagine in part is probably because Franco. I, I mean, I'm not sure what the what what, what exactly were the terms of, of Franco's contract. Mm, let me pull it back up. Uh, he'll make 800k this season. He can earn 200k through incentives. Okay, so I'm and I'm just going to look it up for myself to to double check. But I'm just going to assume, and, and it seems feels like a pretty safe assumption, that he is going to make less money this year than Renato Nunez was scheduled to make through arbitration because you know or whatever. And I don't believe he was arbitration eligible, but um, no, he was not. But he will be making or well. Actually, Nunez is only making about 
he only made 562,000. He made the major league minimum basically in 2019, and that would have been prorated in 2020 because he's still not arbitration eligible. Well, actually, uh, <laughs> the Orioles. I mean, I have to imagine. <laughs> I don't know exactly why Nunez was let go. I have to imagine it's because this was his last season of, of pre-arbitration status and that he was going to get there the next year and that the Orioles probably figured, eh, what are we going to keep paying for this for? Um, fine, I get. I mean, that's the thing. It's kind of hard to tell why the Orioles would want Michael Franco when they could have just kept um, – well, I guess Renato Nunez doesn't or didn't really play – third base or didn't play it particularly well. So I guess, you know, Franco at the very least has, I guess you could see as more experience, but he's also not a particularly good third baseman. And it's not like, I don't really get the sense that he like figured anything out different last year in Kansas city. I mean, he was, a, he was perfectly fine for the, for the Royals. He was an above league average hitter, but, you look at those. You look at the numbers he put up, and it looks a lot like what he did in 2018 with the Phillies. Down to you know the the, I mean maybe slightly let fewer strikeouts, but I don't really, I don't know. I I don't really get the sense that there's something there. You know, like he went. I guess he went from being an abysmal third baseman to a mediocre third baseman defensively, at least. But that's based on a tiny, tiny sample size. Yeah, this is. I don't know, and, and this is something where uh, not having watched a whole lot of Royals baseball last year definitely uh, definitely hurts me here a bit because I can't say for sure, oh, but Michael Franco was a different player last year, you know? We're talking about someone who's made a change or unlocked something or blah, 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 but, like, you know, I'm, I'm just taking a quick look at, like, the at least the numbers that I would consider matter to me, like strikeout percentage, walk percentage. I'm not seeing anything that stands out is like, oh, he's figured something out. I, I just see the same kind of mediocre, just slightly better than league average player he's kind of always been. Huh. So I, I guess, thank you for joining me on this on this journey of discovery <laughs> with Michael Franco. But like, yeah, this is one of those moves I can't see having any significant impact in any capacity. It just I just do find it funny that like the Orioles went from Renato Nunez to basically Renato Nunez. I mean... I, I don't know. This team is very – everything they do seems to be about just trying to save money in some capacity or another, which is why I assume that just off the top of my head that Franco probably cost less. I assume they probably would have cost something similar, but maybe it is just maybe it is just as simple as we just want to get Nunez off the books because he's going to be ARB eligible the year after that, and we just know we don't want to keep paying him because we don't think he's worth the money, whereas Franco is someone that, you know, contract status depending – Maybe they hang on to him, maybe they don't, but I don't know. Your, your guess is as good as mine, I feel like. <laughs> we shall see, we shall see. And also, it doesn't matter, because the Orioles are going to be bad this year. And, no, uh, and, that, and that's kind of what I said. Like The impact is going to be minimal regardless, yeah. just because you know this is an Orioles team that's going to finish last in the AL East, and Franco's almost certainly going to put up one of those 90 to 105 OPS plus seasons that just make... You know, every every team has them, and every season is full of them, but they just... They just disappear like farts in the wind, man. Like, um, yeah, uh, it's like why I get way too excited about like dumb stuff, like who the like. Uh, so Brian Snicker prioritizes pitching depth more than utility depth. So it's like the Braves have one option, like they're the the versatility of Austin Riley being able to be in the outfield if necessary for one day, and Camargo being able to play 
everywhere because he dropped some pounds and like all that kind of stuff. I'm like, none of this ultimately matters. Like this, this one spot. What, no, no, think, it, 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 what am I doing? It's not so much rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's kind of like, especially because this is the Orioles. The ship's already at the bottom of the ocean. Um, but it, it is just kind of one of those minor moves where if you see it kind of float across Twitter or whatever, you just kind of go and go, oh, cool, Michael Franco's still around. Oh, great. And then you just go on with whatever yeah. you're doing in your day. You know, unless you're unless you're a hardcore Orioles fan and you really think there's something there, or an extremely bitter Phillies fan, you're you're, you're probably not even paying attention to that. No. Um, well, let's get into our preview this week. The New York Mets meet the Mets, as they say. The 2021 New York Mets. It's seems like it's going to be a two-team race at the top of the NL East. Sorry to the Phillies and Nationals, but the Braves and the Mets. A lot of firepower. A lot of young talent. Um, obviously the Mets offseason has been highlighted with on the field stuff by the trade for Carlos Carrasco and Francisco Lindor. Um, John offseason letter grade, just primarily not for the, the offseason front office, just absolute dumpster fire, but the actual trades, the actual additions, subtractions to this roster, what uh, what off-season letter grade do you give the New York Mets? I would say a B-plus. Um, okay. I think the Lindor-Carrasco trade was the best move of the off-season, I think, for any team, uh, just in terms of both how little the Mets gave up and what they got in return and how impactful that should be. You know, Lindor is an MVP caliber player, and Carrasco, even though he's apparently dealing with some arm stuff right now, when healthy, he's a legit number two, number three starter, which this team really needed. And they got it for two guys on the roster and Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez, who were, you know, especially Jimenez certainly was, a, I think, a piece that the Mets would have liked to have kept for the future. But, you know, if you can get, if you can get, if you can both get Francisco Lindor in exchange for that and have the opportunity to be the first team to make him a big offer to keep him around forever, then yeah, you get rid of Andres Jimenez 10 times out of 10. You know, Rosario is just a utility guy, and that's you know that's the most he's going to accomplish in Cleveland. And then those prospects, I imagine the Mets won't miss one bit. So that, I think, was the best move for them. You know, I like them re-signing Marcus Stroman. I like them adding Taiwan Walker. I think the, the one thing the Mets did in particular this offseason that we haven't really seen them do in years past is adding depth of a major league caliber level. And it's not just, you know, oh, we're going to re-sign Marcus Stroman and Taiwan Walker to make this rotation deeper. But you even saw it in stuff like the trade, uh, the Pirates-Padres trade where the, where the Padres got Joe Musgrove, where the Mets made themselves a third party and got Joey Lucchese, or Lucchese, actually, I can't remember which one it is, but we'll call him Joey Lukes for now, because that's almost certainly what he's going to be in New York. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy that, you know, he's not a great pitcher. He's pretty much a league average pitcher. He's, he's on the younger side, at least has some intrigue, but he's also not, a, he's, you know, he's got his flaws. But at the same time, right now, he's the Mets' fifth starter, and in an ideal world, he's something closer to sixth or seventh. And that's pretty much like what you want a guy like Joey Lukes for, is to be that kind of sixth or seventh guy, or in a pinch, your fifth starter, because you can live with him as a fifth starter. I mean, do I love a rotation that has both David Peterson and Joey Lukes in it? No, no, I can't say that I do. But I do think the Mets did a good job building up depth. I think you see it also on the roster with um, signing both Kevin Pillar and Albert Almora, because I know we're going to talk about the outfield, which is kind of un- like that feeling we can never have too many capable backup outfielders you know, I, I think there's a better sense of depth for this team now I just think the, the problem is that to me is one third base is still kind of an open hole JD Davis is going to be the starter there and I don't particularly like that I don't think he's defensively adequate there 
And I think he's best utilized as kind of a utility man slash bench bat. And I think the other question is, why didn't this team get a legitimate center fielder instead of, you know, going with the alignment now where they have to play Dom Smith in left? And if he's not in left, then it's, I'm not actually sure who's in left because I think Dom Smith's other position would be first base. But then where are you playing Pete Alonso? And then if you're not playing Dom Smith in left, is it J.D. Davis in left? And then what are you doing at third? You know, having a, a They're really hurt by the DH not becoming a thing this year. Yeah, and that's the other thing is that I understand too that adding another outfielder probably would have been contingent on getting it, on having the DH be, uh, be in place for 2021 because it would have meant you could have just alternated Smith and Alonzo between first base and DH. You could have put Davis at DH some days too. I do think this team, need, I do think that they can survive without a true center fielder if only because I think it's. I mean, it's not a great defensive outfield for sure, but without with Elmore and Pilar on the roster, I think they have some opportunities there in the late innings, at least to put a guy in there who can who can handle the glove. I think the bigger problem for them, at least if, obviously depending on the health of Carrasco, who if this arm stuff turns out to be more serious than it is, that's a really big problem for them. But I do think that probably the thing that they most have to address at some point, I think it's probably going to be there, you know, depending what else happens at the trade deadline. I think is going to be third base. And I would not be surprised if the Mets are part of whatever Chris Bryant sweepstakes opens up at midseason if the Cubs are out of it. But, yeah, I, I do think third base is something. I, and I understand third, the third base options on the market this year were not – it wasn't a particularly deep market, it felt like. Mm-hmm. So I can understand, you know, especially if Justin Turner had, had either wanted nothing to do with the Mets again, which is understandable, or did not want to leave L.A. I think that was probably the best – kind of mid-tier option for them. I guess another option I could see is if the Reds get off to a bad start and they decide to move Suarez? to Suarez. Yeah. Would, that would probably make a lot of sense for the Mets. But overall, no, I think they had a good offseason. I think the, the the roster issues that they have right now are solvable, but mm. I do think this is probably not as strong overall a team as Atlanta, which I think just does have a slightly better lineup, even though Mets lineup is very good. And I think has a little bit, a little bit higher upside in terms of the pitching depth right now. Although, what Jacob Degrom is doing in spring training right now is flat out ludicrous. Um, the dude is averaging a hundred miles an hour with what he's throwing. If there's somehow some extra gear he can find, then all bets are off. Because yeah. goodness, he is, he is rapidly like I don't, I don't forget Trevor Bauer winning the Cy Young. Jacob Degrom is the best pitcher in the National League, and I'm pretty sure at this point he's the best pitcher in baseball. No, like no question. I don't know. Have you seen Bryce Wilson a little bit? Looking pretty good. In I was going to say, I'm, I'm waiting for you to bring up uh, Tuki Toussaint. <laughs> um, do you like the offense? And this is also something when you, I think it's interesting you brought up the outfield stuff and the DH stuff with them, because if there's a team right now you target, if you're the Mets, it's Colorado. And I am curious to see, we know Trevor Story is not going to be around this roster long-term. We also wonder like, why would Charlie Blackman be around this team long term? I am, if I'm the Mets, I am monitoring both very closely. Who would you target more? Who do you think would be a better fit for the Mets? Story in the infield or Blackman in the outfield? I don't really. I mean, it, it depends if Story can play third base. I I don't know. I don't know. I believe he's been a shortstop his entire career. And it's easier and to move from short shortstop. to third than third to short. It is, for sure, and, that, and that's definitely a transition I think he can do, but the question is, do you want to spend the resources it's going to take to get a guy whose best natural position is already occupied just to take up a second position where it's like, well, the other side of it is you could just wait till the offseason when Story walks, and then you'll also have the opportunity to be like, 
maybe Carlos Correa would like to be a third baseman. Maybe yeah. Javi Baez would can move to second base and Jeff McNeil, or Javi Baez can take second base and Jeff McNeil can move to third. Mm-hmm. Maybe Corey Seager is, is a possibility. I don't know that that's a, that's a position the Mets, especially because if you trade for story, then you've also, assuming that you haven't extended Lindor, created a problem for yourself of, okay, which one are you going to extend? Mm. And theoretically, at least you now have a 50%, or at least you have a better odds of keeping at least one of them. But it does feel like if the Mets are going to make, I mean, they've made their move for a young shortstop, and it definitely does feel like they already have one and they should commit to him. And third base is something they can probably figure out without kind of, the weird adjustment that would be, and also the fact that Story would be a rental. Granted, if they got Chris Bryant, that would also be a rental, but Chris Bryant is at least an established third baseman, and, you know, you probably is not going to have as busy a market in the offseason because for whatever reason, people just don't seem that high. Oh, I guess not for whatever reason. He had a terrible year last year, and you also need to wait to see what he does this year. I don't think Blackman makes sense for them at all. I think he brings the same problem that the Mets already have with all their outfielders and that he is no longer good defensively. Mm. And I think on top of that, that your concern with Blackman has to be, you know, what is, what is he going to be able to do not hitting in cores? Because he, I mean, for as much as people talk about, Oh, Rocky sitters don't hit on the road, which is a phenomenon or, or whatever that I think is a little overstated and also a little sim- oversimplified. Charlie Blackman really is two different hitters in cores and on the road. And I don't really know if you're the Mets, given that he's not really bringing anything else to the table in terms of his defense or anything else, that you want to be the team to make that gamble that, oh, no, he'll be just fine on the road, you know. And then, because then you know, the, the obvious downside is you're giving guaranteed at-bats to a guy who's not producing at all, and you're creating more of a logjam in an outfield that's already pretty tied up. So, no, I, I don't really know if anyone there makes necessarily the most sense for them. I think the outfield situation is just going to be what it is throughout the year because I don't really know that they're going to be able to get a, a good defensive center fielder on the market who's also starter capable. I mean, I think the easiest way to do that would have been the offseason. It either would have been spending the money on George Springer instead of – but the thing is, I guess, if you're if assuming Springer takes the same contract to go to New York as he did to go to Toronto, you know, in order – to get Springer, that means assuming that you know that Steve Cohen isn't adding 127 million dollars on top of what he already spent, is your choice then George Springer versus James McCann and Taiwan Walker and Joey Luke's and you know so on and so on and so forth? And I guess I guess going back to the offseason even too a little bit, I guess the question too is you know would you rather have had McCann or Real Muto? And it seems like the Mets kind of talked themselves into McCann early and just decided they didn't really want to be part of the bidding process for for Real Muto, which I find a little strange given that he there really didn't seem to be much competition there. But either way, I, I do think the the third base solution is probably something more straightforward and mm-hmm. probably would just be something like a Chris Bryant or maybe you know maybe they just and I think they probably do just want to see if JD Davis can hack it. I'm just skeptical that that's going to be a viable solution for them. But if nothing else, I guess it's worth a try. The dude can hit at least a little bit. I just don't know if he's a full-time hitter, really. Um, do they need one more starter, do you think? If Carrasco is seriously hurt, yes. And if not, probably not. I mean, it just depends because you got a lot of beyond DeGrom – you do have a fair number of injury question marks with this rotation. Marcus Stroman has, has kind of always struggled to stay healthy for extended periods of time. Um, obviously, Syndergaard's coming back from Tommy John surgery. Carrasco has had health issues in the past. Uh, Taiwan Walker's never been the picture of durability. So, I mean, ideally, you'd like to see maybe 
I mean, it, it really does depend on Carrasco. If he is down for a particular period of time, then I would say, yes, they need to add starting depth, even though I know they're probably not going to, and just go with, well, no, Syndergaard will be back by mid by the midpoint of the season, so we don't really need to do anything. But, yeah, if Carrasco's healthy, I think this, this rotation is probably fine. A lot of it is, I think, going to depend on how Syndergaard comes back and what he's capable of doing. And a lot of it's going to depend, too, on Strowman, who basically had an entire year off, and whether or not that's, you know, whether or not that break was good for him or whether or not he's going to be rusty in coming into the season. So a lot of, I think there are a lot of question marks there, but I think I like the rotation as is now, assuming Carrasco is healthy. The biggest concern you have for the Mets winning the NL East this year is what? Probably health. Like I said, rotation health is really important, and... Yeah, I'd say that's I'd say that's the biggest one I think mm-hmm. for me. Uh, bullpen consistency is up there. You know, Edwin Diaz was great last year, but he does tend to be a bit shaky. Kind of, what are you going to get there? Um, the third base question, like I've like I've already gone over before, I think is is a good one. And obviously injuries. You know, if the likes of Lindor, Conforto, or Degrom get hurt, then that I mean, but that's true of any team. You know, take away one of their top three players, and things are going to go real sour real fast. Um, but I think for me, it's, it's the question of the rotation health. You know, can those guys stay healthy enough to make, you know, to make starts consistently? Because kind of one thing we've just consistently seen with the Mets is that, rota- that rotation depth has always been a serious problem for them. And now they're finally in a position where it's a little better, but it's also something where it's like, you know, you, you don't want to – it's already, you know, you're already down one starting pitcher at the start of the season, maybe in Carrasco. That's about as far as you really want to take it. You know, you, you can't really afford too much beyond that, I think especially in a scenario where every single win is going to be so important because, you know, this is a team that, you know, right, that is pretty much right there with Atlanta, where I think ultimately the NL East is probably going to be decided by a matter of, you know, within three games or fewer. Yeah, I am, I am interested to see what happens here. And I think it'll be fun. And I think it's also more fun when the Braves and the Mets are both at the top of the NL East and are going at it. It's just, it's good. I like competition, healthy competition between these two markets. Um, yeah, it's a nice flashback to the late 90s, early 2000s yeah. when that rivalry actually mattered. Absolutely. Um, last thing, we'll wrap up here, John. Um, the farm system in New York. Who at the top um, are you excited about seeing in a Mets uniform this year? I don't know if there's really anyone at the top of their prospects or the top of their farm system that we're going to see anytime soon because you're talking about guys like uh, Ronnie Mauricio, Brett, uh, Brett Batty, who was their uh, first-round pick back in 2019, I believe, and Matt Allen. Like These guys are all pretty far from the majors. Jimenez was probably their closest, you know, kind of semi-big name guy. He's obviously gone. And that's kind of the thing with this Mets team is, is unlike Atlanta, there aren't really a whole ton of reinforcements farm system-wise, um, you know, that you can you can say to yourself, oh, like, if something goes wrong at X position, they have this guy ready to, to just jump in. Like I said, the Mets' best prospects are still at least a couple years away. So this is a team where I think, you know, what you see now is barring trades and injuries pretty much what you're going to get. And I think that's especially true prospect-wise where, you know, there's some good young players in their system who are exciting, but I, I think they're going to be I, – I don't think we're going to be seeing them for a bit. And I think that's a lot of what necessitated kind of what the Mets did this offseason is that realization that, hey, you know, the farm system is not what it – is not strong enough to kind of fill the holes we need. Let's focus on picking up guys who are ready now and give those kids some time to develop so that, you know, when these guys who are on this roster now are finally starting to age out, Okay, well, here are the kid. Excuse me. Here are the kids to to kind of provide the youth infusion, and ideally be a transition to kind of the next good Mets team beyond this one. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, John. Um, Nationals next week. 
or Phillies? Where are you, where are you thinking? Oh boy, they're both kind of train wrecks in their own special way, aren't they? Uh, let's let's go with the let's go with the Nationals. Why not? Okay. Why not? Because I don't think they're a train wreck. I think the Phillies are more train wrecky than uh, the Nationals right now. That my gut. That's my gut. Um, yeah, but actually, you're right. You're right. The Nationals don't feel like a train wreck. They just feel kind of incomplete in a sense, where it's like, and, and I think there's that looming feeling over them of like they're kind of reaching the end of this particular window, given that. And I will obviously talk about this more next week, but the big one hanging over them is this is the last year of Max Scherzer under contract. And, you know, this this team is obviously has Juan Soto forever, hopefully. Um, but it is a question of like, okay, this, this, this national team is a team in transition at this point. And kind of what does that look like now and going forward? All right. John, we can follow you on Twitter at J.A. Taylor. We can follow myself at Chase double underscore thomas and if you like listening to john and i we do this every tuesday uh major league baseball on this very podcast so subscribe today if you're not already or follow as uh apple has uh changed it up follow because follow means free subscription implies monetary value and there is not it's free to subscribe to this podcast so follow us on apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating review and uh, go keep up with us on ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can get access to all my previous episodes and all of my writing. All right. Go do that. John, always a pleasure, my friend, for that guy up there in New York City, Manhattan, New York, for myself down here in Knoxville, Tennessee. That is all I've got, my friend. We will talk again next week. Sounds good. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by first-timer Ben Jones. Ben, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. Um, Penn State basketball, they made a coaching hire, so I wanted to get your perspective on the hire uh, with Micah Shrewsbury. He was a rumored candidate for a lot of different stops it looked like um, being the associate head coach at Purdue he was an assistant that a lot of people liked he had the Brad Stevens connection which is always great it seems like for college guys um, but I think this is very interesting for Penn State like we know that Minnesota will be making a head coaching change um, with Patino moving on to looks like New Mexico a lot to keep up with but um, I want to first start with how big of a rebuild is Shrewsbury walking into here in Happy Valley? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think that's going to be an interesting question that's going to be easier to answer as the weeks go along. There's a bunch of guys that this morning, um, or at least this morning relative to when we recorded this, you know, entered the transfer portal. Um, but I, I do think that the transfer portal is sort of the blessing and the curse that comes with a new coaching hire these days because, you know, unlike 10 years ago when, when Pat Chambers took over the job for Ed DeCellis, um, you know, getting guys to transfer in was not as straightforward because they had to, you know, aside from grad transfers, they were still going to have to sit out a year per NCAA rules. But this year with the transfer portal with COVID, with some of the legislation that's going to pass to make this permanent down the line, um, you know, the ability for these guys to transfer and be immediately eligible kind of changes the game i think um if you're shrewsbury because it means that you can go out and sort of find replacements for the pieces that you lost obviously you know in a perfect world you know you're not losing anyone you're you don't have to bring in guys you don't have to work on you know sort of finding fit and chemistry out there but i do think that 
you know, this is the sort of thing that might chop a year or two off off, off of the rebuild because I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, Penn State's going to have to spend some time, you know, getting back up to speed depending on what the roster looks like when next season starts. Um, but I do think the ability to go out and find guys um, to replace, you know, the guys that they've lost is going to be big and it's going to be big in the coming years as well. Um, and really the nice thing is whatever you say about Penn State basketball, good or bad, um, you know, if you're offering quality players and ability to play in the Big Ten, um, you know, that's going to look good on everybody's film. So it's not going to be short uh, on people that are going to be interested in that sort of opportunity. Based on what you've heard and know about Shrewsbury to this point, do you think he is the right fit for where Penn State is at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, it's going to be interesting to see who he hires on his staff because ultimately, you know, he's sort of a Midwest or a Northeastern guy. Um, and, and really for Penn State to be successful in basketball, it's got to be able to recruit Philadelphia. It's got to be able to recruit the, the DMV, that sort of where Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area where he is not, you know, specifically familiar with, although Purdue has managed to pull out the last couple of years uh, two of the better Pennsylvania basketball products. So there is some familiarity there. Um, you know, ultimately, though, I think, you know, if you want to win in the Big Ten, it's, it's players, but it's also X's and O's. You've got to be able to job uh, with that. And I think his familiarity with the Big Ten and his sort of pedigree of a guy who has a reputation as being a good X's and O's guy, um, you know, I think that's the other side of the coin that Penn State has sometimes missed. Ed DeCellis was a pretty good X's and O's guy. He wasn't a great recruiter. Um, Pat Chambers was a good recruiter, but some people had some issues with his X's and O's at times. So I think, you know, Shrewsbury can maybe hit that middle area where maybe he's not quite the recruiter that Pat Chambers was, or maybe he has to bring in guys to kind of, uh, you know, shore up things in the Philadelphia region to help them out there. Um, but he might be a better X's and O's guy. Time will tell, obviously. But I think all things considered, especially when you figure that Penn State is not and has never been a program that's going to spend millions and millions of dollars on its head coach and coaching staff, um, you know, there's sort of a ceiling of how good you're going to be able to get um, and I think considering that, you know, they had him, you know, 1A or 1B on their list, um, the fact that they could go out and nail him down, I think that makes it a good hire in and of itself. So if he's 1A or 1B, who is the other person in this? Um, I mean, I, the impression that I got with Dennis Gates from Cleveland State was sort mm. of the other main guy at this point. Um, he had been up for the Boston College job, just staying where he was. Um, but, yeah, he was another a uh, choice on the table, so to speak. But, you know, certainly uh, we can all make wish lists. It doesn't necessarily mean that the things on our wish list we're going to get. Absolutely. Um, why do you think it's so hard to win at Penn State in basketball? Is it just a money thing? Um, I mean, some of it is money. Uh, some of it is money and resources. Some of it is, you know, it, it's sort of like the question of, you know, why is it hard for Rutgers to be good at football in the Big mm. Ten, which is, you know, you're playing against a bunch of really, really good football teams. Whatever you think about the best teams in the Big Ten for football, you know, at the end of the day, Michigan is a very consistent, well-funded program. Ohio State speaks for itself. Penn State is certainly the last five or six years been about as good as anybody in terms of winning consistently. Um, you know, really night in and night out, you're going to play, you know, teams that are really good in the same in, in basketball. You're going to play Michigan State. You're going to play Michigan. You're going to play Ohio State. You're going to play Illinois. 
And then everybody else, you have that familiarity factor that even if, you know, Northwestern isn't good this year or, you know, Minnesota isn't good this year, you're going to know the guys on the other team. This isn't going to come as a surprise to you. Um, you know, you're able to scheme for all of that. You're able to be prepared for all of that. So I, I really think it's just difficult because everyone's so good. And obviously the money, you know, you, there's a reason why people spend money to invest in their, their programs. And it's because, at you know, when it's all said and done, you know, the more money you spend, usually, you know, that can correlate to the amount of winning that you do. And Penn State has sort of made the decision over the years, and it's changed a little bit as of late, um, that, you know, that money is better spent on football. And it's, you know, financially probably hard to argue with that. But I think people that are Penn State basketball fans will say, you know, there's an opportunity there for that to change. The hard part, which goes down a very different rabbit hole, is, you know, State College is not a super big town. Most Penn State basketball fans, at least some portion of them, come from Harrisburg. That's an hour and a half away. Does a fan hour and a half away want to drive, uh, you know, three hours round trip for a 9 o'clock tip in a snowstorm in the middle of Pennsylvania? You know, these are all these sort of factors when it comes to crowds, when it comes to attendance, when it comes to money. Um, that's sort of a long answer, but it, it's a lot of things, but... Yeah, it comes down to money and it comes down to, you know, playing Michigan State every night is kind of hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think, if you had to define the Chamber staff and what they got right and what they got wrong, how would you characterize it? Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't think that you can argue with how they recruited. I mean, Penn State had really good recruits relative to its own history. And, you know, Tony Carr and Lamar Stevens are top 100 guys that, that played really good basketball uh, throughout their collegiate career that could have played in a lot of different schools that, you know, quote unquote, had better uh, basketball traditions. So I think in terms of the, the quality of athlete, the quality of player, um, and really the depth of the roster, the thing that made Penn State a top 10 team last year for a, at least a period of time was the fact that their bench um, would have probably been better than some of the starting fives that they had had five or six years prior. You know, they just had more talent. And, you know, you can win with one Joel Embiid, but the thing that makes, you know, the Sixers good is because they've got Ben Simmons and they've got Matisse Seibel and they've got Tobias Harris and they've got guys coming off the bench and things like that. So, you know, that's sort of a different analogy, but I think that's what they did right was the ability to accumulate talent that they hadn't had before. What did they do wrong? Um, you know, I think that's harder to say in, a, in a, an absolute way because I think any time a shot doesn't go in, or you lose a close game, you know, it's easy to say that could have gone better or you could have won that game or, you know, you should have won that game or that was a bad play call. Um, you know, I think back to Penn State and played Michigan State this year um, in East Lansing. Jim Ferry draws up this great double screen for Miles Dredd to get an open three. Miles Dredd gets the open three and just misses it. Is that bad coaching? Is that just missing the shot? Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, sometimes it just doesn't go in. So, I think if you were going to say anything that they didn't do right, um, you know, there were games that they should have won. There were stretches that they could have won games and that they didn't. Um, but whether or not didn't win every game is a specific issue for them or just the fact that that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes is, is sometimes hard to you know, kind of split the hair on. 
last thing and we'll wrap up here ben um 2021 outlook who stays and who goes on this team how do you think the roster is going to unfold yeah, I mean, I think we'll have a better idea in the coming days, but, you know, John, John, uh, Harris seems to be out the door. Jamari Wheeler, who was unhappy about how things were handled with Pat Chambers, seems to be out the door. Myron Jones is in the portal. Isaiah Brockington's in the portal. I think the big thing, um, for Shrewsbury is going to be, can he keep some of those other pieces? Because if you take a Seth Lundy and Abdu Simbala, um, you take him, Miles Dredd, um, maybe Patrick Kelly, and then some of these freshmen that, frankly, you know, Penn State's got four freshmen on this team, and we've really only seen one of them. If he can keep all of those guys, pick some people up out of the portal, you know, they have a chance to at least be respectively competitive next year. It's just it's too early to say for sure what that's going to look like. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is at the end of the day when you're Penn State basketball and you make a coaching change, you know, you're going to have guys go, you're going to have guys come in, and you're going to have a long road ahead of you. I do think they might be a year or two ahead with the transfer portal simply because they can find guys. Um, but with the losses that they have, um, you know, there's a, there's a reason why you want to keep your old players, and that's because it makes everything easier. All right. Ben, what can we check out from you at statecollege.com? Yeah, I mean, I pretty much cover everything Penn State athletics. So, you know, if there's a the offseason right now, spring ball just started. So, yeah, we got football, hockey, basketball all the things, and then, uh, you know, spend the rest of the time my, my time playing golf. All right. Well, go do that. Keep up the great work, sir. I greatly appreciate the time, and uh, we'll have to check back in again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.